our scripture reading today, we have Ani somewhere uh, who's going to read it. All right, Ani, do you want to read it from there or come up here? Um, I can do it from here or over there. You want to come up here? Sure. All right, come on down. You're the next contestant. <laughs> ASAP. All right. We're cool with A's too. I'm cool with that. <laughs> More Giants guy, but I like the A's. All right. R let her rip. Mark 10, verses 1 through 16. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with the question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice about divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote a commandment, only a concession of your hard hearts, but God made the man male and female to the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother to join with his wife. The two are united into one, since they are no longer two, but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in his house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else, it's adultery against her. If the woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But his disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to some of them that the children come to him to not stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children's arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Well done. Thank you very much, my lady. Oh, give that to Dar on your way back. Thank you. All right. Oh, boy, I remember how many times uh, Lynn and I, uh, tucking the kids into bed at night, would read them a Bible story. And we always look forward to including this passage about adultery and divorce because nothing helps a kid go to sleep better than that. So thank you, uh, Ani, for reading that. And I, I saw Kristen, uh, her mom, this morning. and She was like, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for introducing these concepts into my children's brains. And you know, this was a part of the passage that was in the lectionary today, and um, I almost wanted to just not talk about the divorce chunk, uh, just because I was like, oh, good grief, man. You know, last week we talked about hell, and that was pretty complex and heavy and all that. I was like, give me a break. Let's just cut to the children thing. But then the more I studied it, these two texts about this Jesus saying some things about divorce and then this thing about the children... They're actually related more than you might realize. And so we're going to take a look at this strange connection uh, today. And when I um, was mulling this over and thinking about this and wondering, you know, what are some parallels in our culture that could help us get at this, there was an old movie uh, from the 1980s that came to my mind. And you can go ahead and bring up the slide if they're going to... We've got gremlins in the computer today for some reason, so it may or may not work. Hopefully it works. But there was a movie, um, good enough. I can't figure out how to make it bigger, but that's good enough. Um, and this movie, E.T., remember E.T.? 
It was the top grossing movie in the 1980s. It was huge. Steven Spielberg did it about the story about this, you know, alien creature and this kid and quite an adventure. And just to remind you of it, uh, they re-released it in 2002. And so on uh, the next slide, uh, you get the trailer for that re-release 20 years ago. So it's a little bit of an ad, but it gives you the remembrance of the thing. neighborhood, on this tranquil street, a mystery is unfolding. And an adventure is beginning. Again. I'm keeping you. In March 2002, Steven Spielberg's masterpiece returns to theaters everywhere. Like you've never experienced it before. With enhanced visual effects. Never before seen footage. And a digitally remastered soundtrack. Next spring, take the journey. And experience the excitement as E.T. returns home to the big screen for a new generation to discover what the rest of us will never forget. <laughs> Steven Spielberg presents the 20th anniversary of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Wasn't it a great film? Love that. So it just reminded you of kind of the, the gist of the film. But here's the thing. Um, as I say on the screen, Jesus' response, oh, go back one, uh, Dar. Um, E.T., extraterrestrial, while it looks like it's a film about an extraterrestrial, uh-oh. Uh, so anyway, just stay on that slide. I'll tell you when to go too forward, okay? Otherwise, we're going to see that clip all over again. Uh, so um, even though it's a, a sci-fi film about a little alien, it's really not a film about a little alien. It looks like it's a film about this creature from outer space and all the interesting things that happen, but it's really not about that. There was another E.T. that was in the film that wasn't the little gremlin looking dude. And his name was Elliot Taylor. Elliot Taylor's the little boy in the film. And Elliot Taylor is as far from home as that little space creature. E.T., the terrestrial was left behind uh, on a botanist mission <laughs> to understand plants uh, on our planet. And he wandered off a little bit, and his friends in the spaceship took off and left him there. And that's, that's how the whole thing starts. But Elliot Taylor, another E.T., is also away from home. The home that he knew and loved that gave him grounding, that made him whole, was ripped apart by something that affects many of us, and that thing is divorce. 
everything he knew as a 10-year-old boy, everything that he knew that was stable and true and trustworthy, all of a sudden was gone. The dynamics of his life shifted, and he was as lost and alone as the little space creature. That's what the story's about. Steven Spielberg himself says this many times. This movie was personal to Steven Spielberg because that was Steven Spielberg's story when he was 10. His parents divorced, and it just wrecked him for a while as he tried to figure out how to get back to home in the truest sense. When we look at the passage on divorce, I can go too forward, <laughs> otherwise we're going to see the thing. There we go. Thank you. Jesus' response to questions about divorce aren't really about divorce. And that's hard for us to see because all we see is divorce, 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 divorce. By the way, just out of curiosity, how many of you have either experienced divorce personally or know somebody close to your sphere, they're related, or friends who've been divorced? Yeah, I'd say pretty much everybody here has experienced the tinge of divorce, the pain of divorce. And if you're if you've been a part of church world very long at all, you know that the church has had a challenging relationship with the subject of divorce, which I'm hoping to clean up a little bit today. The verse that we're looking at today, in fact, has been weaponized uh, by some church communities uh, to use to, uh, to push people into submission, to stay in awful, terrible marriages uh, that need to end, and at the same time, throw all kinds of guilt trip kind of stuff on divorced people who then find love later on and want to remarry. These people are told straight from Jesus' mouth, these churches say. Uh, you can't do that or else you're breaking one of the top ten commandments. So what do we do with this passage? How do we understand it? Obviously, uh, if it's clear as bell to me, that Jesus doesn't want divorced people to get remarried, which clearly means that Jesus is more interested in divorced people engaging in perpetual and progressive fornication for as long as they shall live. It's obvious. Hook up with who the heck you want. That's clearly what Jesus wants. It's a lesser offense, not one of the top ten. Go for it. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? <laughs> of course it is. So what's going on here? So I didn't do this in the early service, but I'm thinking it might help uh, right now. So uh, today is my wife's birthday, actually. She was in the early service, and I knew better than to make everybody sing to her uh, for that service. Otherwise, it'd be a very long day for me. Uh, but since she's not here, we'll have to sing loud enough so that she hears it. Does, does everybody know the tune to Happy Birthday? Okay, so we're going to start singing it, and then I'm going to no see if you notice something a little different part way through. Okay, are you ready to sing this with me? I'm an okay singer, so I, I'm going to lead us off on this. You ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Lynn. Happy birthday to you. One of you, one of us, was really off. I don't know who it was, <laughs> but one of us was terribly out of tune. Side note, uh, we have this tradition in my family. Uh, my folks have this uh, summer cabin up in northern Michigan, 
and we're all very musical, and we're all soloists and stuff, and sing harmony and all this, and so my mom loves it when the whole family's together. We're singing on, on the beach, and we're watching the sun goes down, and we sing this beautiful little song, Day is done, gone the sun, you know the song? And the last time I was up there, just, just to be a squirrel, so the family's got this beautiful harmony going on, and I just decide to screw it all up. <laughs> so I sing as out of key as possible, and everybody's like looking around like, what happened to Peter? <laughs> California, right? So, um, so anyway, the reason I wanted to sing off key for you, and happy birthday. When Jesus is dealing with this question, what he's really hearing is somebody singing way off-key, and what should have been a very familiar tune. The very familiar tune, which Jesus was coming to reestablish in the world and hopefully make it a bestseller, was that, or a top-of-the-chart top kind of thing is, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, all about shalom. All about shalom. All about well-being, all about harmony, all about deep peace within oneself, with each other in community, with the creation itself, and in the most intimate union we've figured out how to do within marriage itself. How do we create shalom in that? That is the goal of life. It is where life is. Shalom is the goal, and shalom is the way to that goal. So how do we get to that? We practice what that means. How do we practice deep peace, harmony, well-being? All of that is what we are after. And he gets at that. That's where he goes into the, you know, two people come together and don't let God, don't let man tear apart what God has brought together kind of. And so when he hears this question, he's hearing a question that just really is out of tune because it's so off from what God is trying to be about. And let me explain the context because context is everything. What you see here is not really uh, an opportunity to hear Jesus' final word on divorce. What you see here is a chess match. This is a challenge. The religious leaders of the law, they knew where they were. They knew who they were talking to. Jesus at this point is teaching in an area off the Jordan River that John the Baptist would have taught at. And probably some of John the Baptist's home crowd came to hear Jesus because everybody knew that Jesus was the one who followed John that Jesus followed John before Jesus did his thing and led the whole movement. John the Baptist wasn't, I don't know on this particular text, but eventually John the Baptist was not going to be alive. And the reason John the Baptist was going to be dead is because he called out somebody on their wrongful use of divorce. And the person he called out happened to be the governor of the province where Jesus and John grew up, Galilee. The historical context, you have uh, Herod, uh, who is the governor of that area. And he started having a fling with a woman, Herodotus, who happened to be the wife of his brother. Pretty good soap opera stuff, right? And instead of cleaning up their act, Herodotus decided to divorce Herod's brother so that they could get married. That's why Jesus says, if a man divorces his wife and goes on, he's committed adultery. But then he says, if a woman divorces her husband. In the Jewish tradition, 
You couldn't divorce your husband. But in the Greek tradition, you could. And so here you have, or in the Roman world, you could. And so here you have this couple that's formed, and it was no doubt public scandal. The Jewish people who are seeing this are just like, give me a break. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happens in our day and age, right? And even still today, when we see this kind of thing, we're just like, ah, this is not, this is not great. This is not ideal. This is not how we hope things go uh, in our world. And it was happening right there. And when John spoke out against it, long story short, he got imprisoned and eventually killed because he spoke truth to the power. But they weren't the only guilty ones. The religious leaders themselves, particularly the ones called the Sadducees in Jerusalem. You don't see that word Sadducees in all of the Gospels quite as much because by the time the first century ended, there weren't any Sadducees. Actually, after 70 AD, Sadducees were gone and nobody remembered who they were. And so often you'll see uh, the word Pharisees as uh, a duplicate, a synonym for Sadducees, but they were very different. The Sadducees were the ones who were the city folk who lived in Jerusalem and reigned over uh, the Jewish tradition. They were also guilty of a similar offense that Jesus knew about. In fact, a lot of the Jewish people knew about. The best parallel I can give you on this one about what this looked like would be imagine a boss and a successful boss uh, who is my age and perhaps older. Imagine a you know, I'm 42, so let's see. If you, uh, <laughs> I might not be 42. Imagine a, uh, a mature-aged boss. And a mature-aged boss who's been married for a very long time to his wife who is very similar in age. And then, for whatever reason, we don't know what happens, but all of a sudden the boss really starts to have affection for his secretary who is 22 years old and decides to end things with his similarly aged wife of many, many years and go for the newer model. When we hear that, it kind of makes us sick for lots of different reasons. That's what the Sadducees were doing. They were married for a long time they were the religious leaders. They were the lawyers of the day. They knew the law. They could talk the law better than anybody else. They knew there was a caveat for them in this law. And so they gave a writ of divorce callously, mercilessly to their wives of many years who then were left without much compensation, not much security. Hopefully they had children that might look after them. But back in the day, much worse than it is today, even though it still exists, back in the day, if you got divorced, if you were given a writ of divorce and you were a woman, it was almost surely a sentence to abject poverty. So Jesus is looking at this, knowing who's asking the question. He knows it's a test. The reason they're asking him this is they want him to say exactly what John did so that he'll get arrested and killed. That's, that's the challenge here. That's the chess match. And Jesus hearing this, and he's hearing it coming from religious leaders who are guilty of the, even a worse thing. And the reason why I say a worse thing is because they should know better. They should know the song of Shalom. And they should be the ones who are recognizing their own offense and calling out their own, saying, something's amiss here. And so how do we deal with this thing? How do we understand it? 
it really has to do with this core principle of who are we about? Who are we following? What are we about? What does it mean to be the people of God? To use Jesus' language in the New Testament, what does it mean to be people of the kingdom of God that are following that king called God instead of the king called Caesar? What does it mean to be the people of Israel, uh, the people who take their cadence off of God? And so that's why Jesus gives this example. He resets this. Don't you remember? This is what it's about. It's about couples coming together and being in shalom. And so because that's the ideal, that's the thing that we all aspire to, is have, have the happily ever after. That's why in the later passage in the Old Testament, you hear this very clear statement that's mostly taken out of context, where it just simply says it, God hates divorce, which also has been weaponized against people who are in terrible situations. Do I think that God hates divorce? Yes. Who doesn't? Because of what it means. Divorce means dashed dreams. Divorce means that two people who at one point in their story came together, at least in the ideal romantic sense, in our romanticized view, had hopes and dreams of what the future was going to be. They had plans. And they started to go after those plans. And then whatever happened, happened. And now the thing's falling apart. And it causes lots of pain, lots of suffering to those two people and people around them. It's a big mess. It's not shalom. Does God hate divorce? Of course, everybody. Who, who loves divorce? Right? So what do we do with this? Well, there's another little truth here that you also need to know. And that is that within the Jewish legal code that Jesus himself referenced, there's an allowance for divorce. And there's an allowance for divorce because it needed to be there. There's an allowance for divorce because it needed to be there because women in particular and their children were suffering because of their husbands who were treating them terribly. So there was a provision for divorce built into the code which the ancient Jewish people would have looked at as God endorsed. And if you really want to push it a little further in your understanding of plenary inspiration of Scripture, it would mean that it was God's idea to provide divorce in the Bible. And so you have two seemingly competing things that don't seem like they go together, and yet they do. On the one hand, you have God hates divorce because it symbolizes the end of the pursuit of shalom for that couple and all involved with that and yet at the same time i'm confident that god at the same time even though it is a a, a grieve grieving kind of thing is also grateful for divorce the two exist at the same time grateful because it means that a horrible non-shalom thing can finally be done and the most likely, the person who has been victimized gets a new chance at life. Find shalom again. But the whole point of this story, the whole point of this exchange with the Pharisees isn't really about divorce. It's about what does it mean to be the people of God. And first and foremost, the people of God, we're about shalom. We're about trying to get the harmony, get the peace and all that. And yet, sometimes it can't happen. 
And sometimes marriages need to be ended, and it's fine. It's awful, but it's actually good that it is. And so just a pause. If you've been, if you've been the recipient of this verse or ones like it um, weaponized against you, I'm sorry. That's bad scholarship. I know it's happened a lot. I know that even in abusive, awful situations, churches have told wives to stay with their husband. I've heard horrific stories, even from churches in this town, about abusive situations where the church pastor says, well, you just need to please your husband more, and then it'll, it'll work out. Right back into hell. And I'm so sorry if that's been you. And what I'm trying to communicate to you is that really at its core, you have a God who understands, who wants the best and dreams with you of what can be. But sometimes those dreams, for all sorts of reasons, aren't going to happen the way we hoped. And sometimes that relationship needs to go for very good, healthy, God-honoring reasons. And God's all right with it. Uh, so I just want to give you that comfort if you've been hurt by the church because of it, because I think that's true. But at the end of the day, Jesus is asking the question, and he's turning it back on the Pharisees. Who exactly are you following? You're asking the wrong question. You're going after the wrong thing. Even now, you're asking me these questions, not because you care about divorce. You want me dead. How is that shalom? Jesus is frustrated, and rightly so. So he has this passage, which uh, is talking about the way of God and how we think about that and who are we aligned with. And then it just seems like there's this tack on verse, probably because it was tacked on, where we have a whole different scene now. And now it's uh, parents coming to Jesus and wanting them to bless their kids, probably when he's in some public space doing teaching and stuff. And that leads to the next slide. It will work that Jesus' talk and take on children isn't really about children. Even though it looks like it is, it's probably not. Now, my hunch is that in the question of the day stuff, once you figured out what I was actually trying to ask, well, that was a wonderfully worded question that I had. I always, always feel good about it when I, when I hear an audible, what, <laughs> from the congregation. Really nailed it, using my good education there. Uh, well, anyway, it was basically, if you could be a kid again, what parts of being a kid do you wish were still true of you today? My hunch is that there were comments like, oh, I wish we could be more playful. I wish I could not care so much that people were watching me and what people think. I wish I could just daydream again. I wish I could be filled with imagination. Uh, all sorts of stuff, which I wish I could get away with coloring with crayons again and all kinds of stuff. Watch more cartoons. I don't know what. Uh, but anyway, maybe all kinds of things that you thought. And most of the time when we get a passage like this about, unless you become like this child, you're really not welcome in the kingdom of God. Usually that's the way it's taught and the way we think. And while that's a great sermon uh, to be able to talk about, well, what does it mean to be childlike in that kind of a way, to, to approach God as daddy and sit on his lap and all those beautiful romanticized things, that's a great sermon and that's good stuff for your devotional practice. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something very, very different. And I want to tell you about it uh, because it changes the scope of what these verses are actually about. The disciples were right in what they did. The disciples did the right thing. 
they saw their leader, their master, uh, who was trying to do his thing, communicate to people, and these kids were messing up everything. You know, in our day and age, we live in a time where children are so um, honored, I'm escaping the word here, so accepted, enjoyed, loved, that they are afforded audience in places where even in my generation, uh, that's, a, that's a different thing. I'm kind of straddling here. My grandparents were both in the builder generation. Um, one of my grand, my grand, one of my grandfather was born in 1899. Uh, the other one, 1903. And their wives just a little bit younger. And so kind of the rule in our house, whenever the big family would go around, was the old saying, children are to be seen, but not right. So the cousins would be outside while the grown-ups had their conversation. And generally, if a kid came in, it was kind of looked at as an annoyance. And the parent, whoever needed to deal with whatever the kid was dealing with, wouldn't stop everything and say, hold on, Johnny here has a problem, and we all need to know what it is so we can all address it. (laughs) No, it wasn't done like that. Grandpa keeps talking, and Mom goes and says, what's happening here? Why are you interrupting us? Why did you come in here? Get out of here right now, (laughs) right? You're embarrassing me. So this is not too far from removed from our reality. Now uh, we have a very different scene where kids are welcome everywhere all the time to be kids. I know some kids, uh, none of them crosswalkers, uh, from a different area who uh, are lovingly called uh, by their caregivers tornadoes. (laughs) And these tornadoes hit wherever they go, (laughs) whatever the scene. If it is a family dinner, tornadoes. If it is a wedding, tornadoes. Funeral, tornadoes. These things are wreaking havoc all over the place, and everybody just sort of Let's it happen and just say, oh, isn't that cute and whatever. When most of the people are thinking, that's really not that cute. (laughs) But that's how far we've come in this. Go back to Jesus' day. Kids had few rights. Everything that every scholar says, this is really hard for me to understand, and I'm sure it's hard for you to understand, but they did not have a romanticized view of children like we do. They kind of looked down on them. Like, oh, you idiots, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to finally learn enough to, to, to be at the table? Now, I'm sure parents love their kids. I'm sure that that's the case. But kids were not welcome in the presence of the master. They were not welcome at the feet of the teacher, of the rabbi. They weren't supposed to be there because they did not deserve to be there in that culture. And so for these kids to be there while Jesus is there, even as the parents are trying to break the rules and just get a quick blessing before they go, the disciples are like, hey, we got to bring this thing back to order. This is not how we do things. The disciples were right. The disciples knew that the children did not deserve to be there. And so they wanted them out. And Jesus, by the way, that may be difficult for you to believe, but read the scholarship on it, which I provide for you in the blog. I gave you a whole list of stuff you can, you can read, but that's the way it was. Jesus sees this, and he's like, 
this is an opportunity for a teaching moment because I see here a problem in the disciples that is a human problem that we need to talk about. And so just a little aside of why Jesus may have been soft on this cultural norm. Well, one of the reasons why is if you have a child hanging out, walking around, who else is probably very close by? Mom. Mom is nearby. Mom being a female. Mom being a female who also wouldn't deserve to be in the room because of her gender. If the kids are in the room, that means the moms are in the room. That means the moms are hearing the good news that Jesus came to offer. Jesus was known for welcoming an audience of women as well as men. It's really, really progressive, really, really forward at his time and probably disconcerting for most. So there's that little aside there, which probably explains why he was lax. But in this particular thing, he wants to make a point and he wants to turn the tables on his own disciples and on us in the process. Because he sees the attitude of the disciples that there are some who are here, these little munchkins walking around, that don't deserve to be here based on their criteria. In this case, their own cultural norm, which everybody accepted. And Jesus is saying, no. Unless you come to God as a child, as one who does not deserve to be here, you'll have none of it. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. This is going to feel uncomfortable, by the way, uh, because you hear me talking so much about how much God loves us all and how much God accepts us just as we are. It's true. Even though God is within us, a part of us, closer than we can think, God is way bigger than us. Way bigger than us and when we actually if we had the capacity to really see had just how big god is we would fall into deep silent reverence and we would recognize that we are extremely small and insignificant some of the psalms use a word for reverence called fear and it's probably appropriate because we'd be like, oh man, I don't even look up because I feel so overwhelmed by the majesty and the scale of this greater other. Jesus is saying, that's how you need to approach your relationship with God. Which is intention with this Let's go around town with my buddy Jesus, who's always quick for a hug. It's a tension that needs to be there because it is there. But Jesus is seeing a problem in the disciples, which is a human problem, which is this. That just like the disciples were doing quite innocently, we human beings have the capacity to keep people from the good news. To keep people from being equal players and equal hearers, equal audience members of the kingdom of God. Over time, it's been women for sure, children, orphans, widows, refugees, immigrants, uh, especially uh, if, if well, foreigners usually are immigrants, uh, to people that we hate, to people that we want to hate, to people that hurt us. We keep them away from God. And we say to ourselves, 
Well, they don't really deserve the audience of God, including divorced people. There are some divorced people who haven't entered into church since they got a divorce because they know in the church that they went to, they are not welcome and do not deserve to be there, which comes right out of the priest's or the pastor's mouth. This deserving language. And Jesus is like, ugh, ugh. Shalom, being the people of God, starts with us understanding a proper perspective in that relationship with God. That in comparison, we aren't even ants. We're not even ants. We're not even a speck. We are so small. Just like David said in the psalm, we are insignificant so much so that the natural response is absolute shock. Why would God care about us? It's from that humility that comes that awe of, wow, I'm enlisted, I'm empowered. And I'm also given this responsibility to do something. That's the tone. We would be forever humble before this God and that we would see other people as equally humble before God. This is so counter-cultural and counter-intuitive to our Western age where we believe that we all deserve and, and we all have these, these attitudes of entitlement. Isn't it funny how we think the other has the attitude of entitlement when actually we do too. Every one of us has an attitude of entitlement even with God. And what Jesus is saying is get rid of that idea. Start at the very bottom and realize you've got a greater other here who is way greater than you, the other. Let that humble you in the best of ways so that you'll stay that way and that you'll see other people as equals and treat them as such in the pursuit of shalom. Does that make any sense? All of this, talking about shalom in the context of marriage, what God is after, what does it mean to be the people of God in the pursuit of all this, and now with children, kind of the other side of it is, how do we pursue this shalom? All of it has to do with what we're going to see on the screen. It all has to do with how do we come back home? How do we get home? Because we're all in this broken relationship world. We all live in the mess. And the world around us is giving us all kinds of ways, plural, to figure out how to address the mess. And most of it is like what we see in the Pharisees and in the disciples. Let's deal with this culturally prescribed issue or this culturally prescribed uh, solution. And Jesus is just coming back home and he's saying, ah, there's a way, there's a way, and that way is shalom, which I'm trying to teach you. Follow the way because it leads you to get home. And by home, we're not talking about heaven. We mean that idyllic place, that place of harmony, of peace, of well-being, of strength, of comfort, where you know you are safe, where you include other people around the table because they're family. All the best pictures of what home can be, that's what shalom takes us toward. And it requires a, a very careful, disciplined, really daily regimen of saying, this is the true north I choose to follow. This is the shalom. I understand that I am not the creator. There is another one who has come and he's expressed, God has expressed God's self through the person of Jesus. And I'm seeing that and I'm doing my best to follow that because I believe 
believe it's true and leads home. And I am at, the, at one time just so grateful that I'm loved by God, but at the same time, I'm also wow, really humbled by the fact that I'm loved by God. And it keeps me, it keeps me humble so that I can continue on the way. This is the picture of what it's meant to look like. You want to get to know God, come to God as a child who knows that they do not have any entitled reason to have audience with God, and yet they find a welcome in that same presence. That is a child who's transformed and empowered, who understands that that child is enlisted, empowered, and entrusted with doing something powerful beyond himself. My question is for you today on the final screen to wrap up. Is I'm wondering how you are being invited home, which begs another question, where are you not at home? In your life, what is not home yet? Maybe often it's a relationship. Maybe it's life altogether. Maybe you're in a particular season of your life where it's just a complete mess. And then the question is, is how are you discerning the way home? Because I think the way home that Jesus came to bring just might get you there. And I have a hunch that the ways that the world tries to get that historically don't always have so much a great result. So how are you being invited home? And what is the way you are invited to take? These are deep questions I don't expect you to know off the top of your head. But I hope they bother you the rest of the day. hope I've ruined your day uh, with these questions because I think that's how the Spirit of God Let's pray together. So we're all E.T. God, we are all E.T. We're all trying to figure out our way in a foreign world, a world that has its own operating system and ways that we don't fully get and don't work. We are all ETs, Elliot Taylor, who find ourselves in different levels and frames of brokenness, just trying to get back home. And here we are, God, as community, to help each other, to befriend each other, to remind each other, to say together, we believe there's a way. We believe that this greater other that for some crazy reason cares and has proven that time and again by coming close to us and what is taught through the lips of the greats, the great teachers of the world, including Jesus. There's a way. And so God, first, maybe the greatest thing we can ask your help with humbly is Help us see where we're not home. Help us see where we're not there. Help us be honest about it. For those of us who are married, help us see the parts of our marriage that aren't home yet. For those of us in family systems that are broken and estranged, help us help us understand the complexities of why we're not home. Help us understand so that we can see. Maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's an intrapersonal thing, our own mental health struggles and so forth. 
Maybe it's our jobs. I don't know. Help us know where we're not home. Then I pray, God, that as we do that, that you will nudge us and reveal to us step by step what is the way home. God, remind us that the destination of that home is always going to look like Shalom. And the steps are going to also look a lot like Shalom type things too. So be with us this week as we go from here. May we choose to remain humble because we should. And yet at the same time, may we, may we be in awe of your love for us, of your inclusion of us. May we own it, celebrate it, not be prideful about it, but may we go forward in that power and in that trust that the world might be a more shalom-filled place. I ask this as an attempt to be in the way of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Hope you had a good experience, and we will see you next week. All right. Time to wake up, people. You're, you've been asleep for an hour now. <laughs>